We humans are good at making excuses. I think I can say that because I'm a teacher, and as a teacher, I do hear excuses all the time. I was waiting to work on that assignment until I was older and therefore wiser. My hot air balloon crashed on the way to school. I couldn't be at class because I accidentally ate cat food instead of tuna, and I felt sick. These are just the sorts of things that you hear as a teacher. It's one of the perks of my job. I, I love it. We humans are good at making excuses, and some are silly, but some excuses we actually believe. If we just had more time, if we just had more money, more education, better resources, less distractions, if our circumstances were somehow different, then we'd be different. Do you ever think that way? I think that way of thinking is something that we can naturally absorb, especially living in the context of a progressive city like Evanston. That word, in fact, progressive, kind of gives it away. Modern American university communities, such as our own, by and large, believe in a narrative of progress. This idea that if we study a problem long enough, and we put the right resources into the hands of the right people at the right time, and we put the right systems into place, well, then we can really solve all the big problems of the world. And so progress is just a matter of time. It's a conceit that comes from competence. We look at the brokenness of this world around us, and we explain it away with various circumstantial factors. Shoddy parenting, systemic injustice, money, time, education. And it's, it's as if... The right mix of political activism and technological development and education could somehow get to the root of what's wrong with the world. And, you know, there's an element of truth to that idea. Our circumstances do matter. Our environment can shape us. Those things are important. But what we're going to see today is that ultimately no amount of time, no amount of money, no amount of education can fix the human heart. And in the end, the only true solution that really gets to the root of this world's problems, it's not more funding, it's not more teaching, it's not more proven leadership, it's divine judgment. That might strike you as a very controversial claim. It clashes with the progressive worldview. It might be offensive to you. But the Bible is very clear. We're going to see today that ultimately, in the end, all the disorder and injustice and the crime that we see in this world, it's not going to be rehabilitated or reformed or relabeled. It's going to be conquered and punished. A God of love cannot let sin linger. And that's the only solution uh, to, to uh, the problems of the, the world that we see today. Ultimately, when we want to get down to the root of what is wrong with this world, only divine judgment can get to the bottom of things. And that's what we're going to see in Scripture today. Let me just set a little bit of the context before we turn to our passage. At EBF, these last few months, we've been studying the book of Revelation together. And lately, we've come to a portion of that book of Revelation towards the end of that last book of the Bible where we get this glimpse of future events. And it's a glimpse of the future that shows us a sequence of events that unfolds that results in an ideal state of affairs here on this earth. In Revelation chapter 19 and then into Revelation chapter 20, 
we see the nations that are warring against the Messiah, they are conquered. These two uh, enemies of God's people, the beast and the false prophet, they are rounded up and thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is bound with this big chain and he's placed into prison. And then the Messiah comes and he reigns on earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords with his people for 1,000 years. It's an ideal state of affairs on this earth, what biblical scholars refer to as the millennial reign of Christ or the millennium where you have this righteous ruler reigning over the nations without any resistance. Jesus is on the throne. The nations are populated with resurrected saints and the offspring of these faithful believers who had stood by the Lord at this great battle in Revelation 19. Every circumstantial factor that you could imagine was just right for people to respond faithfully to God and for there to be human flourishing. And today, we are going to be looking at what happens at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. What do the nations do at the end of Christ's 1,000-year rule over the nations? And how does God then respond? That's what we're going to be looking at today. The story starts in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead. Turn with me to Revelation 20, verse 7, and let's start looking at the picture that unfolds there. What do the nations do at the end of the millennium, and how does God respond? Revelation 20, verse 7. Let's start by looking at what the nations do at the end of the reign of Christ. Read with me. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Let's stop right there. So at the end of a thousand years of the Messianic kingdom, at the end of the millennium, Satan is going to be released from prison and the nations are going to turn their backs on God and gather together to make war against the Messiah and against God's people. That's the picture that we see unfolding here in this text. The nations rebelling against the Lord and making war against his people. Now, think about that for just a second and the implications of this picture. What does this picture tell us about the condition of the human heart? We've got to remember the context. This is after the millennium, after 1,000 years, where every circumstantial factor on earth was just right for people to respond positively to God. In the millennium, the government is going to be the best, the most just, the most equitable government you could imagine. In the millennium, all the disorder and chaos and injustice that we see around us in this world right now, it is going to drastically subside. There will be no famines, no wars, Apparently, no natural disasters, very little sickness. People are going to live long and very healthy lives. And it's going to be that way, not just for a decade or two, but for 1,000 years. Imagine all of the progress that's going to take place over that time. I mean, can you just imagine what would happen in the world, what this world might look like if for 1,000 years, all of us could spend all of our time and energy, all of our resources on good stuff, you know? I mean, right now, so much of our time, so much of our money, so much of our uh, energy and thought attention goes to dealing with the realities of living in a sinful world that all around us, it's falling apart, right? 
I mean, we spend billions of dollars every year on our defense budget, billions of dollars every year on health care. Disasters, big and small, come into our lives, and we spend so much time and energy and money just picking up the pieces and trying to start back over and put things together. But in the millennium, all of that's going to stop. It's hard to imagine, but we are going to be spending so much less of our time, our energy, our money on dealing with sin. I, it's crazy to me. It's hard to picture. There's one thing in particular I would really love to do in the millennium. I can't wait to go to the airport in the millennium. I, I just think going to the airport is going to be a completely different experience uh, in the millennium because I, I'm pretty confident that you're not going to have to get there two hours early. You probably aren't going to have to take off your shoes and your belt. You probably won't need to throw away your water bottle, subject yourself to a cavity search. I bet you'll just walk right up get on the plane with your dignity intact and, uh, and take a pleasant trip to your destination. It's going to be amazing in the millennium. Just think about it. Think about how different the economy would be in the millennium. You know, right now, our, our, so much of our economy, it's built around mitigating the effects of sin in various ways, you know? If you're a lawyer, if you're a mortician, a TSA agent, if you sell insurance... Uh, you might have to find new work, actually, in the millennium. Uh, I, I, I imagine the economy is going to look pretty different. I think that's probably okay. You're going to find something to do. But just think about all the progress that would take place. Think about what would happen if for 1,000 years, every ounce of our creative energies, our money, and our time, it could be devoted towards building beautiful things, creating new technologies, exploring the mysteries of this world that we live in. Who knows? Someone in the millennium might even figure out the mystery of kafefe. Kafifi? Kafefe? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, if, you don't, if that one, yeah, I'll, I'll keep moving forward. It's going to be a great time in the millennium, a, a thousand years of peace and prosperity. And during that time, it is going to be crystal clear that Jesus is the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. He ought to be obeyed. And at the end of that time, Satan's going to come onto the scene, and just like that, all the nations are going to turn their backs on God, reject him, and rebel against him. For 1,000 years, everything would be set up just right for people to respond appropriate to God, appropriately to God. And as soon as that millennium ends, everybody's just going to turn their backs on God without excuse. And that's the picture of the human heart that we're seeing portrayed here in this passage. And, you know, we humans, we like to believe that if our circumstances were different, then we'd be different. The millennium is God's clear proof to us that no amount of time, no health or wealth or technology or education, no external patch can fix an internal flaw. This bent we have in the human heart towards rebellion against God. And notice in the text as we look at this picture of human depravity, notice how the author depicts that when Satan goes out to deceive the nations, he is wildly successful. Look again at verse 8, the imagery of, of, of just the widespread success that Satan has as he deceives the nations. It says that they come from the four corners of the earth, that their number is like the sand of the sea. That reference there to Gog and Magog, that's drawn from Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And there in that text, you get this picture of these 
strong and powerful armies gathering together to make war against God's people. And so Revelation's drawing on that imagery here. And, and the point is that at the end of the millennium, the majority of people on earth, these nations, the majority of people that are populating this planet are going to turn their backs on God the very first chance they get. No excuses. So how's God going to respond? For 1,000 years, every condition is set up just right for people to respond positively to him. And instead, they turn their backs on him. They reject him as their king. What's God do in response to this rebellion? Well, he's not going to ignore it. He's not going to minimize it. He's going to conquer and punish it. That's the only just thing left for God to do here at this point in the story. So let's go ahead and read and see that unfold here in this passage. Pick up the story again with me in verse 9, okay? And they, that is the nations, marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence the earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What we have here is a picture of God's final judgment. And in this text, God's judgment, that final judgment, is methodical, it's exhaustive, it's complete, and it's completely just. Because as we've just seen, no other solution can really get at the heart, the root of what's wrong with this world. I just want to point out a few things here in the passage that we just read about God's final judgment. First of all, I, I I want you to see and, and take note that God's judgment here is depicted as this methodical and exhaustive sequence of divine actions against sin. Okay, the, the passage depicts a whole series of actions that God is going to take. And in the end of that series, every last trace of sin and its sources and its effects in this world have been dealt with, okay? It's actually a, a very impressive picture. If you were to break it down into components, there are actually five steps to God's judgment here in this passage. First, uh, God judges the nations in verse 9. Then God judges the devil in verse 10. The physical universe itself, earth and sky in verse 11. Verses 12 and 13, you get the judgment of every soul throughout all of human history. And then finally, in verses 14 and 15, the last enemy, death in Hades itself, faces the judgment 
and is thrown into the lake of fire. Five steps, and by the end of that sequence, we have seen God systematically purge the entire created order of every last trace of all of sin throughout history. And every last trace of sin's effects, every last trace of sin's sources, it's the judgment of God depicted in all of its terrifying and beautiful fury. You know, right now, a lot of us, at least some of us, when we, when we feel uncomfortable about this concept of judgment, part of why we might feel uncomfortable is because presently when we look around at the world around us, judgment seems haphazard. It seems inconsistent. Whether you're talking about God's direct hand of judgment or the judgment that you see exercised by authorities out in the world. You know, some sins get punished, but then other people do all sorts of crimes and injustices and they seem to get away with it. And so justice right now seems elusive and judgment is exercised in this haphazard, inconsistent way. It doesn't seem fair. And so sometimes we can kind of be like siblings in the backseat of a car. You know, we're, we're pointing the finger and then we're just crying out against the idea that we should be punished when it just seems like dad's playing favorites. But there is going to come a time when God will completely and exhaustively exercise his justice with perfect consistency. And every last trace of sin throughout all of history, every last trace of its sources and its effects, is going to receive the exact punishment that it deserves. There is something deep down inside that is profoundly satisfying about this picture of God's future judgment that we have here in this text. As we live in the midst of a world where injustice reigns, all around us, the world is crying out for justice. And the great hope of this passage is that one day, God will completely and exhaustively answer that cry. It's this exhaustive purging that finally gets at the root of what we all know is really what's wrong with this world couple other things I want, you to point, I want to point out to you about the judgment here in this passage. The next thing I want to say is notice here in the text that uh, you are a part of this story, okay? This judgment is a judgment that is universal. Each and every one of us is going to stand before God's throne of judgment one day. Look again at verse 12, and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. See here in the passage, there's an emphasis on the way that God's judgment is universal. No exceptions, no loopholes. There's no favoritism with God. All of us are going to stand before that throne of judgment. Verse 12, it's the great and the small. Verse 13, each one of them is judged, okay? And so you, me, everyone else in this room, we are going to be standing before God's judgment seat. Also, I wanted to say, as we look at those verses and we think about that picture of judgment that's uh, going to play out there in verses 12 and 13, notice that it's a judgment according to the way that we live. It's a judgment according to our deeds. The text couldn't be more clear here. Uh, they were judged according to what they had done, verse 12. And again, verse 13, each one of them according to what they had done. It's a judgment according to 
our works, the way that we live. And if you were to go through the rest of the Bible again and again and again, as you read the New Testament, you're going to find the same sort of sentiment expressed that each of us will stand before God's judgment seat one day and we will be judged according to our works. Now, when you think about that image of a judgment according to works, you could go in a lot of different directions, some uh, more faithful to Scripture than others. So just want to clarify the images a little bit here. When you think about that, we've got to be careful how we think about a judgment according to works. Don't picture this idea of like scales tipping in a balance where you have your good deeds and God is weighing your good deeds against your bad deeds. And if you just help a few more old ladies across the street, then you'll work your way into God's favor. That's not the image here. See, God's standard is perfection. All of us fall short of that standard. If God is going to exercise his favor toward us, it has to come through his grace. So don't picture scales tipping in a balance. That's not the idea, okay? None of us could earn our way into God's favor simply by just doing a few more good deeds. That, that's not the image. No, no scales tipping in a balance. Instead, when you think about this uh, picture of divine judgment, I would suggest that the image, when you're thinking about judgment according to works, might be something like dogs that are playing at a dog park. Dogs at a dog park. And when you think about dogs at a dog park, if you and I were to go down to the park today after church, and we were just to observe what was happening at the dog park, it would more or less, generally, it would be pretty easy for us to judge which dogs belong to which families based upon how they act, right? I mean, if you have a pet, you might think, well, my dog is pretty disobedient. But I promise, if you go down to a dog park, you can tell which dogs belong to which families simply by watching how they act. I, I, uh, growing up, I had a dog. Her name was Darling. And Darling was a retired racing greyhound. And, uh, and in light of that, I got her when she was five years old, but Darling uh, uh, had a traumatic past, and so she had some serious flaws as a house pet, uh, uh, to say the least. She was very possessive of certain things. She, she tended to be very territorial. She definitely was temperamental, and generally she just smelled really nasty, and, and there was nothing we could do about it. But, uh, but the thing about Darling was that she, she would listen to me. She was my dog. She wouldn't really listen to my dad, my mom, my siblings, but Darling would listen to me. And if we went down to the park, and there could have been 20 dogs around at the park, and, and we would be playing, but if I whistled, none of those dogs at the park would do anything. But Darling would come. She would respond to my whistle, okay? Now, did she always obey me? Of course not. You know, one year she ate my ice cream cake, I was pretty angry about that. Another time, she killed my sister's pet guinea pig, and that was a family uh, trauma that we're still recovering from. Darling was far from perfect. She never could have earned all the good things I gave her, food, shelter, doggy toys. But the way Darling acted was clear proof that she was my dog, that she belonged to me. She was a part of my family, just like the way that all those other dogs at the park, the way they act, that's clear proof they don't belong to me. I'm not calling you a dog, but Scripture is very clear. Scripture is very clear that the way you act, how you treat people, the way you speak, the things that you do in your life, they make it evident whether you belong to God or not. See, if Jesus is really your king, you're going to respond to his whistle. You're going to do what he commands. Not perfectly, of course, but still, there's going to be clear proof that you're a part of God's family. And 
That's the idea in the text here. Dogs at a dog park. Each of us uh, Christians are saved by grace. We come to God and it's only because he freely offers a relationship to us that we can have that experience of entering into his family. And yet that grace that saves us also is the grace that changes us. And so we are going to live differently. And there is going to be clear proof from the way that we live that we belong to God, that we're a part of his family. Deeply flawed, broken in all kinds of ways, but evident nonetheless. Okay, and that's the picture here in this text. And the text gives us a very vivid image of what's at stake in this judgment according to works. This is the last thing I wanted to point out about the passage. It's very important. Notice here that those who do not belong to God, those whose works make it clear that their name is not written in the book of life, the punishment is eternal conscious torment. Okay, the stakes are very high here. Look again at verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And if you jump up just a few verses to verse number 10, you see that the lake of fire there is a place of eternal conscious torment, day and night, forever and ever. The decisions you make today, the way you live your life right now, has eternal consequences. That's another area where the judgment of God tends to raise questions for us. Is it really fair what God has done here? Is this judgment, an eternal punishment, really a just judgment? That seems very harsh. It's a very long time, eternity. Is the punishment in proportion to the crime of our sin? Have you ever thought a question like that? Yeah, I guess you don't have to raise your hand, but I know myself, I've thought about that from time to time. I just want to offer a couple uh, comments that might address some of that issue. First of all, it is important to remember the context, again, that all of this is happening after the millennium. And that matters because, you know, a big reason why we struggle often to uh, come to terms with the idea of God's wrath can tend to be this, this belief that we have that if, if people's circumstances were different, if they just had more time, if they really knew all the facts, well, then they'd respond differently to God. But see, the millennium shows conclusively that that's just not true. No amount of time, no program of reform can fix a heart that's bent on rebellion against God. So the context here is important when we think about the justice of God's judgment. I don't know that it still gets at the issue of proportion, though, right? I mean, we believe, we know that for a judgment to be just, it needs to be in correct proportion to the crime. Less serious crimes, justice would demand that less serious crimes uh, ought to receive a less serious punishment than more serious crimes. So is it just and fair for God uh, in this passage to uh, give an eternal punishment to the sins that any given person might commit? And then and that, when you think about that issue of proportion, I would just suggest that there is uh, uh, one thing in particular that is very important for us to remember. And that is that the seriousness of a crime depends in very large measure on the identity of the victim. Right? If, if you're in a car, it matters a lot whether you run over a dog or you run over a pedestrian. If I trespass on your lawn, I'll probably receive a lighter punishment 
than if I trespass on the White House lawn. See, the seriousness of a crime depends, at least to an extent, on the identity of the victim. Now, in Scripture, it's very clear that God is the victim of our crimes. The identity of the victim is God. First and foremost, our sin is an offense against Him. And here's the deal. If a human sin is way more serious when it's committed against a human than that same crime is when it's committed against a dog because of the dignity of the human, then it stands to reason that when we sin against God, our sin bears a weight and a significance that we as humans can scarcely even imagine. God is the God of all creation. He's our creator. We receive a dignity that would come from him, but he is the God of infinite worth. And the gap between us and God is infinitely greater than any gap that might exist between us and any other thing in creation, a dog or anything else. God has made us in his image. He's invested us in his dignity. And God is an eternal God. And so our actions today have eternal consequences. And if we are struggling to see how the judgment of God is in proportion to the crime of our sins, might I suggest that our problem is probably related to our small, small view of who God is. I think if we are viewing God rightly and we recognize the grandeur of who he is, the the dignity of his position and, and who he is and his identity, then we will recognize the gravity of our sin and will acknowledge the justice of God's judgments. God is an eternal God. Your actions have eternal consequences. We humans are good at making excuses. Just have more time. Just a little more money. Just a better education, different parents. There will come a time when every excuse we can think of is exposed as hollow. And you and I will stand before a judge who knows every hair on your head, every secret thought, every hidden motive, every last thing that you have ever done. Are you ready for that day? Right now, we are going to be transitioning into a time of reflection as we offer the Lord's Supper. In this text, it's a text that calls us to examine ourselves. Does your life show that you belong to God? Are you living with Jesus as your king? It's not about whether you said the right words in a prayer sometime in the past. It's not about whether you were baptized as an infant. And the question's not, are you a perfect person? Nobody's perfect. That's not the point. But does your life show that you're a part of God's family? Are you living with Jesus as your king? It's about the ongoing way that you are living your life right now. And if your life does show that, then this meal, the bread and the wine, it's for you. Come and take and eat, looking forward to the day when Christ returns and reigns as the Lord on earth as he does in heaven. But if, as you examine yourself, you look at this text, you picture God's judgment, and there's not any trace of uh, any hint in your life that Jesus is your king, and you're not sure whether you're ready 
for that day when you're going to stand before the judgment throne of God. I beg you, don't leave here today without doing something about that while there is still time. God has made a way for each and every one of us to stand before his throne of judgment with confidence. Jesus Christ took upon himself the punishment for sin, this wrath that we see so systematically poured out here in this passage. He took that upon himself and he bore that punishment in our place. Scripture says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He took that punishment and then he was raised from the dead and now he sits at the right hand of God interceding for us as our mediator, making peace with God. And so today, no matter what you've done in the past, if you will come to Jesus today and start living for him and give your life to him and make him your king, then you can have the confidence that one day when you stand before the judgment throne of God, when that day comes, Jesus has already borne and paid the punishment for your sin. You are justified because you've made peace with the judge. If today, as you look at this picture of God's judgment, and you know your life needs to change, please come and talk to us as we take the Lord's Supper. The elders of this church and their wives are going to be standing at the sides of the room, and we would be happy to help you turn to God and start living your life with a new king. The choices you make right now, today, have eternal consequences. Don't miss this opportunity to respond to the call to turn to Jesus. Start living for him as your king. Let's pray. Lord, your judgment is a terrifying and beautiful thing. Show us the grandeur of who you are, that we might recognize the true weight and gravity of our sin, and we might affirm and acknowledge the justice of your judgment. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who bore the wrath of God in our place, that we might have a relationship with you, that we might stand before your judgment throne one day justified, not on account of our good works, but on account of our relationship with the one who has paid our debts. Help us to turn to Jesus, to live for him, and to encourage others with boldness to do the same.